Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host, Howard Sides. Today, we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, we will be in chapter 20 and verse 13. Chapter 20 and verse 13. And uh, I'll just, uh, th- this last section of the chapter, which is about the great white throne, judgment verse 11 through 15 I, I like to read it together since it all kind of fits together and tells us kind of what's going on so we'll read that whole little section and then uh break it down uh for today's podcast okay okay revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 and i saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so we are on verse 13 today. And let's just start right into it. Uh, Last podcast, we pushed it right to the last minute. So I'll try and avoid that today. Uh, Verse 13 uh, is, uh, we are now introduced to what is called the summons. Uh, In this section, verse 11 down through 15, uh, the first thing we see is its setting, its setting in verse 11 through 12. Verse 13, we are introduced to its summons. And then 14 and 15 is its sentence. <clears throat> All right, so it's verse 13. We're talking about the summons today. Uh, the first phrase, and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. Now, note that, uh, as we've discussed earlier, the earth and the heavens have already dissolved away. They've already passed away. So too have the seas. I mean, they go along with part of the earth. That's just common sense. Now, th- this is not an error. This is following the pattern of the book of Revelation where one subject line is followed for a while and then another goes back to a previous time and catches up to a parallel ending. This is called recapitulating recapitulating, uh, which is a review of a brief summary as at the end of a speech or a discussion or a lecture uh, where they may be talking about one subject and they break it down and discuss three different parts of that, uh, whatever the lecture or discussion is on. And then in the summary, at the end, they go back and review all of that. And and that's kind of what's going on here. This is not something that's out of sequence or out of order or trying to cause confusion. It's going back and catching up and, and, and bringing us to one uh, common point here, which is basically the end, okay? I mean, that's no easier way to put it. Now, why is uh, the sea specifically mentioned? I mean, there's other parts of the earth, right? I mean, mountains and plains and uh, continents where all the people are. That's the important stuff, right? I mean, that's the way we like to think of it. So why would the sea be called out by John here? Uh, Now, to put this into perspective, uh, Albert Barnes, in his commentary, I I think he does a good job of doing that, and I'll 
quote what he said, Albert Barnes said, and I quote, uh, if we include all who were swept off by the great flood and all who have perished by shipwreck and all who have been killed in naval battles and buried in the sea and all who have been swept away by inundations of the ocean, that's what we call tsunamis today, uh, and all who have peacefully died at sea as sailors or in the pursuits of commerce or benevolence, the number in the aggregate will be immense, a number so vast that it was proper to notice them particularly in the account of the general resurrection and the last judgment. Now let's, end quote, now let's also in this body of seas, uh, seas uh, let's not forget that that it must also include all bodies of water, such as lakes, ponds, rivers, and Saturn, you think, well, what's the big deal with them? Um, and we went over this in Sunday school class. I said, well, you know, you've got the Great Lakes, uh, which have had quite a substantial amount of shipwrecks and lost sailors and things in them. Uh, but then you've got these rivers and ponds where people have been dumped in them uh, and nobody knows it. And in this day, God knows they're there and, and he's going to collect those bodies to put back uh, with their souls. All right, uh, Thomas Constable, uh, another commentator, I guess is <laughs> uh, a preacher. I, I'm kind of careful. Some are evangelists, some are preachers, some are called other things or professors, whatever they are. I, I don't really know whether he was a preacher or what. But anyway, he had a commentary. Uh, and on this phrase, he notes, uh, and I quote, God will resurrect the bodies of all unbelievers and unite them with their spirits, even those bodies decomposed in the sea in every other way. The special mention of death by drowning and burial at sea may be due to the fact that the ancients regarded these fates as especially abhorrent. And he makes a note that he got that information from Sweet, S-W-E-T-E, -E, on page 273 of his uh, book that he wrote. I don't have the title of the book. I don't know what it is, but it was, that was the original author. But anyway, okay, so that is our first phrase there, and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. All right, now notice, I noticed the next phrase says, and death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them. Okay, now the first thing to note here is that use of the word them. It's talking about death and hell as two different things or entities or subjects. They're not together as in they are one item. They're together as they work together or correlate together or join together, but they are two separate things. That's why there's the use of that word them at the end. Now here, death describes the resurrection of the bodies, the physical bodies. This represents all those unbelievers who were buried in graves in the ground cremated or destroyed in any other way on earth that it was not covered in the first phrase where it says, and the sea gave up the dead. So death is the other bodies. All right. So death describes the resurrection of the physical bodies. Hell here then describes the resurrection, if you want to call it a resurrection, of the spiritual soul. And considering that they are at this time kept in what is referred to in Luke 16 as, as, as paradise. It's not certainly not paradise, but the place of paradise, uh, they, I, a resurrection is maybe the correct term. They are brought up, but 
wherever they are, they are brought to a place where they are to be joined together with the body, which is resurrected. So there you go. Now, hell here is the place of torments. It used to be part paradise and part Hades. And then, you know, I don't have time to get into all that, but let's just say when Christ uh, resurrected and it says that many that were dead and the graves were, you know, busted open and resurrected with him. Uh, that, that's what he did. When he went down and he took the keys of death and hell, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute in, in chapter one, that's what he did. Uh, he went down and took control of death and he took control of hell and he took all the souls of those that were saved uh, at that time that, that their souls were in that place with Abra inside of Abraham's bosom, like Lazarus, uh, and took them home to heaven with him. And it basically emptied that side of that chamber. And I, I don't know how it works. Maybe the great gulf was done away with. Maybe it was filled in. Maybe it was brought together. Maybe there's two separate chambers. I don't know the answer, but basically uh, only the uh, spiritually dead, the unsaved are kept in that chamber now. Okay, some some suggest that the reason Christ resurrected them when he did was to make room for them. That's that's pretty sad when you think about it, uh, even in that situation. But anyway, uh, now this verse represents what is known as the second resurrection. And we'll see that at the end of uh, verse 14, it talks about the second death. We'll get into that when we get there. But here, uh, let's keep it noted as the second resurrection. Now, the first resurrection involves all of those that I just talked about when Christ uh, resurrected himself. And then he resurrected those that were in that place of paradise then. And then the resurrection of the church. That's all part of the first resurrection. If you want to put it this way, there are two resurrections. The resurrection of the believers and then the resurrection of the unbelievers, non-believers. However you want to put it that way. So that's what this second resurrection entones. This, uh, and, that, and again, that's when their unbelievers' body and soul are brought together, as we mentioned. Uh, now, death and hell are mentioned together several times, uh, indicating to us that they do have much, if not everything, in common. <clears throat> uh, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. That's a capital D. That's a title. That's a name. And hell, also with a capital H, as in a title or a name, followed with him. And power was given unto them, two separate things, over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now, this is uh, the fourth seal, which results in widespread death. And that, that's what verse 8 of chapter 6 is describing. That's, that's what happened when that fourth seal's broken. Uh, now, I mentioned it a minute ago, but also death and hell are mentioned in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 where Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Lowercase letters. Now to have the keys, Christ is telling us that he has control of both the body and the spirit, like we mentioned a minute ago. Now the righteous dead, whose soul and spirit were at one time in Hades, have already been resurrected. Their soul and spirit has been reunited with their body at their participation in the category of the first resurrection. Thus, Jesus has emptied out Hades and death of those who are his prior to this judgment of the great white throne. This delivery of the dead that is talking about here 
their casting out occurs at the moment when the earth and heaven flee away at the presence of the almighty judge. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the next phrase. And they were judged every man according to their works. They were judged every man according to their works. Uh, John Wolvord, in his commentary, offers up a pretty unique opinion on this phrase. Uh, and I thought it was interesting. And I, I, and I, I think there is maybe something to what he's suggesting here. Uh, I'll read it and then I'll explain what we're, we're getting at here. Uh, he says, and I quote, uh, the peculiar construction of the closing clause of verse 13, they were judged every man, according to the works, uses a third person plural for the verb judged. They were judged. But a first person singular in the masculine for the term every man. And that Greek word is hekastos. Uh, hekastos. H-E-K-A-S-T-O-S. Uh, now, the meaning is that while they are judged as a group, the resulting judgment, nevertheless, is individual. And what he's talking about, and uh, what, I've, what I've always heard, um, pretty much my whole life, I guess you'd say, is that in this great white throne judgment, uh, God's going to call every individual unbeliever up and he's going to stand before him and they're going to review this film of his entire life and show every mistake, every error he made, every time that he was maybe witness to or every time that he saw a testimony of God and he rejected it and all that. Can you even possibly imagine how long that would take? Now, I know we're, we're talking about God here and I know things are going to be, this is going to be forever. But it's not going to take an eternity for us to get there. So I think maybe John Wolford may be explaining how this thing really works and, and how it's going to be possible where all the unbelievers are there together and God's passion judgment on all of them at the same time, but they individually hear and understand their own case as it is uh, to themselves. And you think, what did... did let me see if this will explain a little better. Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is the uh, story of when uh, the Holy Spirit comes down and baptizes them, and, and it's the day of Pentecost. All right, and it says that Peter uh, started preaching. And uh, let, let me see if I can flip over to the passage. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, that's the key to everything that happens in the book of Acts right here. Everything good, uh, almost always, and, and this phrase is repeated quite often here, they were all with one accord in one place. It's not the fact that they were in one place, and it's not that they were all there, but the key is the one accord. That, that's the key to the whole thing. But anyway, another sermon for another day. Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. Now, who is it talking about? Not everybody. It's talking about this small group here, the 11 apostles. 
or disciples that were there. As the Spirit gave them utterance, and there were, dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, not confused, they were confounded, because that every man heard them speak, those 11 speak, in his own language. And you think, well, they're all Jews, or they are all speaking in Jewish. No, because he's getting ready to break it down for us. Verse 7, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Here we go. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes, and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. That's 15 different uh, languages just mentioned right there in verses 9 and 10 and 11. So here uh, they're speaking in their language. Okay, this is how tongues work. They were speaking in their language. But with the interpretation of the fact, they all understood what these 11 were saying in their own language. They heard it themselves. Now you say, well, where does this interpreter thing come in? All right. If you have one apostle, say Peter's out traveling in all these different parts of the world, and he goes into this foreign country, doesn't speak the language at all, but God gives him an opportunity to testify to these people and say he's got a group of uh Say so he said these Galileans. Say so he's got a group of these Galileans with him. I don't know. Let's just say four of them went with him. So there's five of them. They all speak the Jewish language. Okay. And they travel to this place, let's say Ethiopia, just for an example. All right. Now to testify to them, there's got to be some communication, some, some way possible. And that's the gift of tongues. Now how this works is Peter would speak to the Ethiopians in the Ethiopian language. Okay? Now, Peter may not understand what he... I'm thinking Peter would understand what he's saying, but maybe if he heard what was coming out of his mouth, it, it sounded like a foreign language, but he would know what he was saying. God would give him the understanding to know and then translate what he was saying into the Ethiopian language. Now, he's not leaving out the five men that were with him because there will be an interpreter. In other words, somebody that will take what Peter is saying and translate it back into Greek so that the five men will know what they're saying. And it's probably one of the five. Just the, that, that's how the interpretation works. In other words, nobody's going to be in, in this group or, or, or service or whatever it may be and hear this babble going on and, and never understand or hear a correct interpretation of what's being said. Okay? If there's tongues being spoke then it is in a understood, understood and known language of someone in that group. It's for their edification. It's for their benefit. Okay? And then you're not going to stand there and just not know what's going on. God never involves confusion and he has never allowed babbling. Useless, just blah, blah, blah. You know, there, there's always a clarity of what's going on. All right? Okay, now let's get back to where we were. All right, and they were judged every man according to the works. So just as there are uh, uh, 
But, but I hope that clarifies the point that I was making. What what John Wolvard is saying is that they're going to all be gathered in one place and judgment's going to be passed upon them, but they're going to hear to themselves the individual judgment. Okay, does that make sense? God can do that. It's no different than in, in the service today. When a pastor preaches a message uh, and say congregation member A uh, has a, a, a problem and, and they hear the answer to it. Uh, congregation member B uh, is struggling with something and the same message, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and they get comfort for it. Congregational member number C uh, is facing a difficult time and they get comfort out of the words of the same. So it, it speaks to everybody different. That, that, that's just how it is. That, that's how alive this book is. And, th and this is the only Bible that does it. None of those other versions can claim to have a revival or two or three uh, when that Bible's used. You'll never see it. Look it up. Doesn't happen. All right, going on. Now, just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there will also be degrees of punishment in hell. And I believe there is biblical precedence and backing for that. And I've, we've mentioned some of it before, but let's go back and look at another one again. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 43 through 48. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Clearly what he's saying there is that the more information you have, the more times you've been witness to, the more times you've sat on a church pew, uh, the more you're held responsible for that. And you will be beaten many more times than one who uh, didn't know. They're still going to be beaten, but not with as many stripes. And and don't don't get hung up on that portion up there. Uh, and it will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. I think what that's pointing to is the fact that this is still a believer. He did not uh, he did not listen and obey the Lord, and so he's going to be treated as though he was an unbeliever because he had no faith. And, and the Lord says that a lot about the, you know, ye of little faith. <laughs> so uh, what's going on here is, uh, in summary, every unsaved person from Cain all the way to the end of, up to the individuals taking part in Satan's final rebellion in verses 7 through 9 will be judged in this place. The soul, represented by hell, will be reunited with the body, represented by death, to stand trial in the form in which they sinned in which is a physical body. It will be glorified, but it will be a physical body. 
All right, final section here, verse 14 and 15. It's sentencing. It's sentencing. Now, in, uh, let me see, because I've got a second point here somewhere. Okay. Verse 14, <laughs> it's talking about the second death. Verse 14 tells us about the second death. And let me see, verse 15, I got to get down to it, tells us about the sinner's destruction. Okay. All right. So, uh, second death and the sinner's destruction. Verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death. Now, that first phrase, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. What, what exactly is meant by this phrase? Now, some, some suggest uh, that the phrase death and hell is what is called a metonymy. M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. -E -E metonymy. Now, a metonymy means a figure of speech that consists of the use of the name of one object or concept for that of another to which it is related or of which it is a part. Examples of that would be somebody uses the term scepter and what they mean basically is all the sovereignty together. Or they may mention the bottle, you know, hey, he hit the bottle. And it's talking about alcohol. Uh, some may say counting heads. And basically what it means is you're counting bodies, you're counting people. And you're not just literally counting the heads because everybody would have a head, right? Or sometimes we use the phrase white house. Well, you know, did you hear what come out of the white, you know, did you hear what they said in the white house today? Uh, and, and it's not literally talking about the house that's white. It's talking about the current presidential administration. It's, it's a representation. It's a an object or figure of speech that, that is talking about something else that's gathered in with it. So death and hell here, uh, some suggest, is this uh, form of a metonymy. Now the metonymy here is that death and hell as the container represents those contained within it or basically the lost souls and the bodies. In other words, by saying death and hell are cast into the lake of fire represents the unbelievers who will be cast into uh, the lake of fire. Uh, critics of this thought suggest that death and hell cannot represent the lost physical or personal beings contained in them due to the omission of the word torment. When we are told that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire in verse 14. Um, it's just suggesting that when, you know, they're put to that place, there's torment. Now, I would say when Satan was thrown in, uh, it says he shall be tormented, but it doesn't say that he is like in torments. It just says he will be. Uh, and I think it's just a description of what will t happen to him when he gets thrown in there. So I don't really think that's a strong argument. But again, that's just one idea of what some people think this is. Now, there's another suggestion. Uh, that death and hell is a figurative way of saying that physical death will no longer be a reality, but that the second or the spiritual death will remain, and just as Satan, the beast, and the false prophet uh, have lost all their power as a result of being cast into the lake of fire, so likewise death and hell will have completely lost all of their power. Uh, now, basically, what this group is saying it is when this death and hell is cast into the lake of fire, that basically uh, physical death ends, but spiritual death still remains. I, for what point? 
I mean, that doesn't really, it's still little clueless or confusing. Now, still others suggest that this phrase not only represents a location alone, but may also represent a personal satanic agent and or demon and his associate as well. And they go back to Revelation 6, 8, where it says, and his name that sat on him, his name that sat on him was death with a capital D and hell with a capital H followed with him and power was given unto them. Now the same names may also refer to satanic forces defeated by Christ in Revelation 1, 18, where it says, uh, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Now what we do know, what we do know, is that human beings that deny Christ will be tormented in the lake of fire. That's clearly stated, Revelation 14, verse 10, 11. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Forever. Tormented forever. The second thing we know uh, is that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are described as shall be tormented. And that also refers to all of satanic's demo, uh, sorry, Satan's demonic forces. Uh, and I go to Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, it it's where Satan's cast in and at some point, whether it's not at that moment or later on, all of the angels are going to end up there. When Satan was bound for the thousand years, well, obviously his demons had to be two, uh, else they would be wreaking havoc. Um, you, you know, it, it, it was not just Satan, it was his entire system. Now, finally, there is some who suggest a fourth meaning, and I kind of go along with this one. Uh, so let me explain what this one says. Uh, this means that death itself will be annihilated forever. And since death will be gone, and that's physical and spiritual, okay, physical and spiritual, there will be no reason or purpose for the place called hell. Uh, scriptural support for this. Revelation 21 and verse number four. We haven't got quite down to that, but let's read what it says. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Uh, a little further back, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 55. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So death is swallowed up in victory. It's defeated. And then finally, Isaiah 25 and verse 8. Isaiah 25 and verse 8. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for the Lord hath spoken it. 
So there's a clear indication that uh, death is going to be done away with. So if death's done away with, there's obviously no need or purpose for a place called hell. There's no more dying. Okay. Okay, now let's look at this term, uh, the lake of fire. The lake of fire. Now, this phrase is only mentioned five times in the entire book. And it actually all happens in the book of Revelation. And even closer down to that, it's all in Revelation chapter 19 through 21. Uh, let's see, there's one time in chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. All right, and then in chapter 20, it is mentioned in verses 10, verses 14, and then verse 15. Uh, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Uh, verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that's three times in chapter 20. And then there's one final time in verse 21 and verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, so there's your five times that it's mentioned, uh, this lake. And, and a lot of times it's mentioned with brimstone or and brimstone, but lake, it's a lake of fire. Uh, now, it is described as an everlasting fire. Uh, yeah, I'm having to edit some of my notes here as we go, so just bear with me. All right. Uh, it is described as an everlasting fire. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And then Matthew 25, 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, this is always, uh, also called an unquenchable fire. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Okay, now on this term, uh, 
where the worm dieth not. And I've mentioned this in a past podcast. I, I really do believe that that term uh, is describing uh, our physical bodies. It's it's like it, it he actually some some of the writers I think even David himself uh, mentions himself as a worm, uh, and it's talking about where our bodies are not going to die, but uh, to kind of you know some people say that this this lake of fire is going to have these worms in it that that never die, and you think well how is that even physically possible? Well we know. We're talking about things that that have not even been created yet. Is the lake of fire there? I don't think the lake of fire is created yet. It's not been established. It's not needed yet. The first time it's needed is when the uh, uh, I'm kind of putting myself on the spot here, but I think when uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet cast in it, I think that's the first time it's needed. You know, it's not needed before then. Certainly not till Revelation kicks off. I don't think the lake of fire is there yet. But in in this whole thing about, you know, a worm that, you know, couldn't survive and that stuff. Well, okay, let's look at the scientific side of it. Okay. Now, June the 2nd of 2011, a guy by the name of Dave Mosher wrote an article for the National Geographic News. The title of the article is New Devil Worm is Deepest living animal. Again, new devil worm is deepest living animal. Uh, I've actually got a picture of it here. (laughs) It does. It looks like a worm. All right. Uh, Now, the article goes on to say, a devil worm has been discovered miles under the earth, the deepest living animal ever found, a new study says. The new nematode species called, oh boy, here we go, Haley's Halicephalobus mephisto. Halicephalobus mephisto. Partly for Mephistopheles. Okay, sorry. The the demon of Faustian legend suggests there's a rich new biosphere beneath our feet. Before the discovery of the signs of the newborn worm at depths of 2.2 miles, nematodes were not known to live beyond dozens of feet deep. Only microbes were known to occupy those depths. Organisms that, it turns out, are the food of the half-millimeter-long worm. That sounds small, but to me it's like finding a well in Lake Ontario. These creatures are millions of times bigger than the bacteria they feed on, said study co-author Tulis Onstott, a geomicrobiologist at Princeton University in New Jersey. Shocking worm evolved for harsh depths, is, is the title of the next section of the article. Onstott and nematologist Gaetan Borgioni of Belgium's University of Ghent first discovered H. Mephisto in the depths of the South African gold mine. But the team wasn't sure if the worms had been tracked in by miners or had come out of the rock. To find out, Borgioni spent a year boring deep into mine, mines for veins of water, retrieving samples and filtering them for water-dwelling nematodes. He scoured a total of 8,343 gallons until he finally found the worm in several deep rock samples. What's more, the team found evidence the worms have been there for thousands of years. 
Isotope dating of the water housing the worm placed it between 3,000 and 12,000 years ago, indicating the animals had evolved to survive the crushing pressure and high heat of the depths. This discovery may not surprise passionate nematologists like Gayton, but it's certainly shocking to me, Onstott said. The boundary of multicellular life has been extended significantly into our planet. <clears throat> uh, the third section is titled, Worm Inspire Search for Extreme Life. <coughs> Onstott hopes the new devil worm will inspire others to search for complex life in the most extreme places, both on Earth and elsewhere. People usually think only bacteria could exist below the surface of a planet like Mars. This discovery says, hold up there, Onstott said, we can't negate the thought of looking for little green worms as opposed to little green microbes. The devil worm study appears online June the 1st in the journal Nature. Now, it's important to note that this lake of fire, um, and we're back to the notes, I'm talking about worms, that there's actually another article I guess I didn't include it here. I didn't think it was worth mentioning. Uh, but there's the ribbon worm that lives in the bottom of the ocean in these vents of the um, uh, of the heat that come out of the bottom of the ocean. And it's like thousands of, thousands of degrees. And molten rock actually comes out. Of it. And within that molten rock, there's these worms forming. <laughs> so uh, to say that a worm can't live in uh, fire... Melted rock, nah, nature's proven that is not the case. Okay, all right, going on. Now, it's important to note that this lake of fire is not just a state, but it's also a very real place. It's a very real place. <clears throat> uh, I want to quote uh, a guy by the name of Lewis Sperry Chafer, uh, who wrote this, it's a book, I'm assuming, could be a paper, but I'm assuming it's a book. Uh, Systematic Theology. And in volume four, page 429, he says, and I quote, As heaven is a place and not a mere state of mind, in like manner those reprobated go to a place. This truth is indicated by the words Hades, Matthew 11, 23, chapter 16, verse 18, Luke chapter 10, verse 15, chapter 16, verse 23, and in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, and again in chapter 20, verses 13 through 14. And Gehenna, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 22, no, chapter 5, verse 22, and then again, verse 29 and 30, and chapter 10 and verse 28, and the book of James chapter 3 and verse 6. Also, a place or a, a place of torment. Uh, Luke 16, 28. That it is a condition of unspeakable misery is indicated by the figurative terms used to describe its sufferings. Everlasting fire, Matthew 25, 41. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 44. Uh, the lake which burneth with fire, and brimstone, Revelation 21 and verse 8. The bottomless pit, Revelation 9, 2. Outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Mark uh, Matthew 8, 12. Fire unquenchable, Luke 
chapter 3, verse 17. A furnace of fire, Matthew 13, verse 42 and verse 50. Blackness of darkness, Jude, verse 13. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, Revelation 14, 11. In these instances, a figure of speech is not a license to modify the thought which the figure expresses. It is rather to be recognized that a figure of speech in these passages is a feeble attempt to declare in language that which is beyond the power of words to describe. It is well to observe also that nearly every one of these expressions fell from the lips of Christ. He alone has disclosed almost all that is revealed of this place of retribution. It is as though no human author could be depended upon to speak forth all of this terrible truth. All right, one other point uh, here about this lake of fire. Uh, I mentioned it before that I didn't think that it's created yet uh, because there's no need for it yet. But it does beg to ask the question. <laughs> so where could this lake of fire be? Where is it going to be? Uh, where does it start? What, what kicks it all off? Or what, what's going on? Now, note what a man by the name of uh, C.T. Schwartz uh, of New York University says in his book, The Bible and Science on the Everlasting Fire. All right, I quote, <clears throat> The word lake must connote a body of matter having liquid form. Therefore, if scripture is true, this eternal fire must be in liquid form. The very simple proof of the proportions of scripture we have been discussing lies in the existence of the singular phenomena of the skies known as midget or white dwarf stars. A midget star is one which, because of some things which have happened to it, not quite clear at this time, should be roughly 5,000 or more times as big as it really is. Applying this idea for illustration to such a planet as the Earth, you must conceive the Earth as having shrunk to such an extent that its diameter would be about 400 miles instead of being 8,000 miles in diameter as it really is. This enormous density has a great deal to do with our subject. Most people know the sun, our nearest star, is rather hot. There is general agreement that the temperature at or near the center of stars is between 25 million and 30 million degrees Fahrenheit. At such temperatures, much can happen, like the bursting of atoms, which helps to explain the phenomena of the white dwarf. A temperature of 30 million degrees Fahrenheit could, explose, uh, could explode atoms. It would cause the atoms to lose their electrons, even though the attraction between nucleus and electrons is an octillion times the attraction of gravity. The separated parts could then be better packed in, particularly under such great pressure. With the constant activity of X-rays, atom walls could not be reformed. Therefore, enormous densities such as are found in the midgets can be attained. Now, please note, at such high temperatures, all matter would be in the form of gas. In a white dwarf, the pressure is so great 
that gases become compressed to the consistency of a liquid, although they may still respond to the characteristics of a gas. Before such a star could cool off and gradually become dark, it would have to expand to normal proportions. That is, it would have to get to be more than 5,000 times its present size. Here is the difficulty. Such expansion would cause enormous heat, which in turn would absolutely keep the star compressed, so that, insofar as astronomers and physicists know, the midget stars can never cool off. The white dwarf, to all intents, can never burn out. May I summarize to show that the Bible, God's Word, is scientifically accurate. We find first an eternal fire which cannot burn out. Being of a liquid consistency, it is, secondly, a lake of fire. In the third place, it cannot be quenched, for any quenching material, such as water, would immediately have its atoms stripped of electrons and be packed in with the rest. In the fourth place, since astronomers have been and still are studying this strange phenomena, it is only too evident that the lake of fire has been prepared and is now ready. Although we cannot say that God will actually use these lakes of fire in fulfilling his word, the answer to the skeptic is in the heavens where there are lakes of fire. End quote. Now, what do you think about that? <laughs> uh, there are lakes of fire in space right now. Now, if, is it the lake of fire? Ah, uh, it very well could be. Uh, could it be that the Lord takes the earth and uh, through what is described in, in 2 Peter and chapter 3, uh, that intense amount of heat, this very earth that we're on right now could be turned into the lake of fire. I, I mean, do we know? It's in the future. We just don't know. So there you go. Okay, very interesting information there. Uh, now this final phrase here in verse 14. Um, this is the second death. This is the second death. Death and Hades personified, cast into the lake of fire, expresses that Christ and his people shall never more die or be disembodied spirits. In hell, the ancient form of death, one of the enemies destroyed by Christ, shall not continue, but a death far different reigns there. As the result will be everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, an everlasting and eternal testimony uh, of Christ's victory. Uh, now, this place will be God's cosmic garbage dump. Now, what I mean by that is the clearest and most vivid of the New Testament terms used to describe the final hell, the lake of fire, is Guiana. Guiana is the New Testament word for the valley of Ben-Hinnom, also called Topheth. In 2 Kings 23.10, Isaiah 30, verse 3, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31 and 32, and chapter 19 and verse 6, located southwest of Jerusalem. In Old Testament times, idolatrous Israelites burned their children in the fire there as sacrifices to false gods. Jeremiah 19, verse 2 through 6. In Jesus' day, it was the site of Jerusalem's garbage dump. The fires kept constantly burning there, gave off foul-smelling smoke, 
and the dump was infested with maggots, where the worm dieth not. Sometimes the bodies of criminals were dumped there. The Valley of Ben-Hinnom <laughs> was thus an apt picture of eternal hell, one used repeatedly by Jesus. Uh, Matthew 5, 22, and then verse 29 and 30. Chapter 10, verse 28. Chapter 18, verse 9. Chapter 23, verse 15 and 33. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, 45, and 47. And then Luke chapter 12, verse 5. Hell will be God's eternal cosmic dump. Its inmates will be burning as garbage forever. Uh, Oliver Green said, and I quote, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Death itself will be cast into the lake of fire, and there will be no death after the great white throne judgment. None will die in heaven or in earth. End quote. All right. Wrapping it up, verse 15, the sinner's destruction. <coughs> the sinner's destruction. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Uh, the first two words there, and whosoever. Now, can you not help but see Jesus Christ there on the throne, opening up the word of God and turning to that most famous and well-known verse of all of the scripture and all the Bible and pointing out this word with his holy finger. In John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who's going to have an argument against that? None. There is going to be no argument. Next phrase, not found written in the book of life. According to the book Manners and Customs of the Bible by James M. Freeman, uh, it says, and I quote, It was customary to have registers of citizenship in which were entered the names of citizens, both natural and adopted. <clears throat> Heaven is represented as a city, and its inhabitants are registered. Some who have not yet reached the heavenly city are regarded as citizens on their way home. Their names are registered with the others. <clears throat> when one was deprived of citizenship, his name was blotted out or erased from the role of citizens. So as long as your name is in the book of life, you're, citizen, you're registered, you're a citizen. Whether you're residing there or you're on your way, you're still a citizen. <clears throat> okay, cast into the lake of fire. Now, their casting into the lake of fire may be another indicator that none who stand in this judgment are saved. All who are part of the second resurrection, which empty death and hell, are bound for the lake of fire. This is the fulfillment of the promises of God to destroy death and the grave. Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now he clearly says it right there, that the last one will be death. Uh, later on, same chapter. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 54 through 55. So in this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Uh, final verse of reference. Re uh, Revelation chapter 21, where we are, and verse 4, which is just ahead of where we are. Next chapter, sorry. Next chapter. <laughs> We're not in 21 yet. I've been studying it, so I'm kind of referring to it as currently where I'm at. All right, Revelation 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Okay, friend, that is the end of chapter 20. And with that is the end of the uh, third section of the four sections in the book of Revelation. Uh, the first section is chapter 1 and chapter 2. Yep. No, actually, I'm sorry. Um, let me rephrase that. It's just chapter 1. First section is chapter 1, visions of God. Visions of God. The part 2 is chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's visions of grace. So you got visions of God, visions of grace. And then chapter 4 uh, starts the, the, the vast majority of this book. Chapter 4 through chapter 20 is visions of government. Visions of government. And then uh, uh, with the next podcast, we'll jump into the final category, which are the last two chapters of the book and the last two chapters of the Bible, uh, Revelation 21, 22, which will be visions of glory, visions of glory. All right. Well, I'm about out of time. Run it right to the hour point again. <laughs> Just can't get enough of it, right? Well, I'm trying to finish it up. That's what it is. Um I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Um, this, this is a fascinating study, and there's no way anybody should be intimidated by this. We should be encouraged. This, this should be a rally cry for us. Uh, the Lord's in charge. We have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing to fear. Um, all right, so in closing, thank you for listening. Uh, I pray that you uh, continue to pray for me. Uh, certainly remember Maddie. Uh, Remember Maddie Mitchum, Maddie Moo. Uh, pray for her. Lord's just using her. I pray the Lord just continue to use her. She stays strong. Our prayers are what's keeping her strong. If you don't know that, that's what's keeping her strong. We need to continue to pray for her and her family. And uh, remember to pray for each other. Okay? All right. Thank you for joining me. And hopefully you'll be here on the next uh, podcast. And we'll start in Revelation chapter 21. Have a great day. God bless you.